0: Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to another episode of the show that explores our place in time. In modern post-industrial society, we tend to think of time as money. We reduce the thing to the measurement of the thing, and allow our lives to be dictated by the whirring of microscopic clocks faster than humans can perceive. I am talking about high-frequency algorithmic trading, because in a weird way, our human lives are now completely dependent on machine time. We've followed the Pied Piper of easy money down an accelerating entropic cascade, and along the way, it would seem, we've lost the richness of what time used to mean for human beings what time was to the Pythagorean scientists of the ancient world, to the archaeoastronomers of Stonehenge to the author of the I Ching and by doing so by equating time and money we have ironically lost a profound source of wealth or the human experience. Well, it does not have to be this way. And in this week's chat with hacker, inventor, and educator Mitch Altman, we're going to explore a different angle on how to live our days the value of leisure, of boredom, of quote unquote downtime. And since Mitch gives talks and workshops in hackerspaces all over the world, He has some interesting thoughts on what we're going to do with all of our time come the impending wave of technological unemployment set to sweep over us as these very small and very fast clocks overtake human activity and render so much of what we thought it meant to be human economically irrelevant. If you liked episode 19 with Susan Molnar, you're going to love this one. It's very playful and honest. It isn't easy living in this accelerated world, but Mitch has some lovely no-bullshit perspectives that help me reclaim my own dignity as a 21st century human being. But before we get into the conversation, I want to just take a moment to thank everyone who has subscribed and rated this show on iTunes and everyone who continues to support with their small monthly donations over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield is where I post all of my new music, public talks, chapters from the book that I'm writing. If you like the ideas that we discuss in this show, then go check out the archives at Patreon and help yourself to all of the free stuff available to you there. I greatly appreciate it. This remains a totally independent garage band kind of endeavor. And by giving two or five or ten bucks a month, you are supporting the scrappy underdog, working to improve the quality of the conversations that we have about our moments in history and the world that we are building for our children. It is damn hard to run a one-man magazine and record label these days, and I love you all for listening. And I have some great stuff coming up, actually, for Patreon supporters. The shows and talks I gave in Australia will be available to you very shortly. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Enjoy this episode. It was a delight talking with Mitch Altman, and I hope you agree. better Here we are. How are you? Good. Let me,
1: uh, skip some volume happening here. Audio. Cool a mic this time.
0: Yes, I'm super official, professional style. So, where are you? I'm at
1: Noisebridge.
0: Yeah. Explains the equations and paint splatters. And there's a green screen. Oh my gosh, look at that. So you're in a super creative space. This is a good, a good uh, invitation, then, to just tell people a little bit about your function in the social ecosystem i guess <laughs> like let's just not even waste time with small talk who are you mitch altman what do you do and then how do you how do you do
1: <laughs> i'm doing great uh and uh, as far as who i am i've been uh, working on that for the last 60 years and uh I'm making some headway maybe i'm not i can't quite tell but um you know i uh, i do lots of things that i think are cool because I, I i try to continually explore and do things that i really love doing and um you know and i'm a moving target so that's always interesting and challenging and it's really what gives my life meaning is that whole process so um Hmm. I'm at Noisebridge, which is a hackerspace, one of the early ones that uh, was created in the United States. Uh, when we started in 2007, there were only about you know maybe two, three dozen. It's hard to say how many exactly. And um, now there's thousands in the world. And I, I one of the things I do is go around the world helping people form these kind of spaces. And uh, I can tell you more about those later if you like. And um, I also give talks on various subjects anything from technical things uh, like microcontrollers and music synthesis and digital signal processing or uh, beginning uh, electronics for little kids or big people, uh, how to solder, which is uh, one of the things I've done. I've taught tens of thousands of people how to do that. It's fun. It's <laughs> useful. It's it's uh, it's it's really cool. And you can do so many things with it. I also became uh, internet famous initially because I I uh, created a keychain called TV Be Gone that turns TVs off in public places. And I have one here. (laughs) There it is. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, it's just a little keychain that turns TVs off. And I like turning TVs off, and I like making this available for other people to do it, even though that wasn't my intent. My intent was to make one for me, but it just turned out that so many people wanted them that I made a bunch, and I've sold a half a million.
0: Wow <laughs>
1: Actually, more now, and um, so over the last 13 years, me and 12 friends have made a living at this with this small, little, sustainable business that we all love. And um, yeah, making a living doing what you love is way cooler than having some stupid job. And uh, that's another thing I like talking about as I travel the planet. So um, yeah, that's still a little bit of uh, what I do. I don't know. Maybe that describes a little of who I am.
0: Well, insofar as, what is it, a- action becomes habit and habit becomes character, you could say that you're a living testament, a, like, model research population on the... Like, like, I remember Jim Morrison talking about how the music that he wrote for The Doors was just the best concert that he could imagine. Like, that, that was his, his watermark, like, his goal was that I just reproduce when I sit here and imagine the best possible concert in my head that that's what I'm trying to create and I feel like that's like if you look at something like TV be gone it's like the all the really good stuff it seems like is not about trying specifically trying to cater to the needs of an imagined other it's about you having a clear and immediate sense of that thing that you desperately want knowing full well that you're not unique in the cosmos and therefore by pursuing your own passion you are fulfilling some sort of social need and niche i don't know how do you say it that
1: Good. You know, like that's when I talk about entrepreneurship, I think that's what defines a really good entrepreneur rather than what we probably normally think of as entrepreneur, which is someone who thinks of, how can I make money? That's the first step for what most people who call themselves entrepreneurs, unfortunately, that's their first step. And, um, you know, I think to be a, a good musician, a good artist, a good entrepreneur, a good hacker, whatever, anything, a good person who lives their life, you have to do things that you think are awesome. And if you do things that you think are really awesome, chances are you're not the only one. And, um, you know, and if you are being entrepreneurial, you want to come up with something that's meaningful, right? Meaningful to you personally. If it's meaningful for you, then maybe it's meaningful for other people. And then that's the kind of thing that people will pay you to do. And then you're putting something out in the world that's actually meaningful rather than just some stupid thing to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making money, but, you know, if that's the only thing you're doing, chances are you're not making your life or the life of those people around you or the world a better place. You're just getting a bigger number in a bank computer.
0: It would be interesting, I think, if – because, you know, so much of this is systemic, right? And it's based on the way that people behave within a money system that is extractive and based on – the. financing of debt and you know if you think about like a full cost accounting system in which nothing is invisible to the economic analysis in which the you know the the eco services provided by a rainforest for example have concrete financial value And it's recognized; it's not invisible. We're like the the social benefit of a mother—you know—all the work that goes into raising a child is not invisible to the economy. Like in a world like that, I wonder if these people who really don't have the sophistication or the vision, uh, depending on I don't know how you slice it, to. Uh, Sees these things more complexly than just I'm going to maximize this bottom line, but like in a world where you have full cost accounting, even greedy behavior would end up maximizing a bottom line that profits everyone. So, mm-hmm. like something I, th- I spend a lot of time thinking about is like how could we wiggle the system around to support. Because it it takes time to grow up and become a person that gives a shit about the big picture, and it, and it, it and it's so much easier to get some skin in the game, like it's just so much easier to go work on Wall Street than it is to like develop to a level of moral concern that em- embraces the whole world. So how do we twist those systems so that greedy behavior reward is it ends up benefiting everybody?
1: I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's, it's seemingly easier to get a job on Wall Street than to live a life that's worthwhile. But um, uh, I don't really think Maybe not. Yeah. it is easier, uh, if all things considered. You know, if if you're, you know, like, I don't, I don't know uh, many people who have jobs on Wall Street, but um, I imagine that to do that, you've got to ignore many, many other aspects of your being. And by doing that, you're neglecting aspects of yourself that need expression just as much as any other, and that takes its toll. It's super stressful. Having not enough time to do the things that you feel deep down are important are really um, uh, detrimental to one's well-being and certainly one's health. So, um, you know, but Bucky Fuller, in many of his writings, and in, in I think it was his last book, Critical Path, talks about what you were getting at uh, uh, quite a bit. If we had an economy that was based on something more real, like the health of the planet, rather than on just rising numbers in a bank computer, um, then the real costs of doing anything uh, would include... The health of the planet, which, of course, supports all of us, which is good for all of us, which is good for me and good for you. Um, And then a gallon of gasoline wouldn't cost, uh, as it does here, I don't know, I don't have a car, so I don't even know, uh, two, three, four dollars. Or in Europe, um, uh, four uh, or five euros a liter, uh, which is more than here, but still, it would be more like a million rather than that the real cost to the planet is quite high. But our whole economy right now is centered around uh, basically an infinite flow of inexpensive energy source. And right now that happens to be mostly oil. Um, so how do we make that transition? And how do we even do that? I don't know if that's possible. And Bucky Fuller, you know, again, quoting him, um, says that uh, said that we either have uh, the choice for utopia or oblivion. Those are the two options. So, and I actually think he's right. Um, We don't seem to be heading towards utopia at the moment, uh, especially in this localized time period. We're heading in the wrong direction for sure in our country and in most places in the world. Um, But, you know, I, I think bringing it down to a more personal level, at least that's the approach I like to take. So what can I do, and you were mentioning this before too, what can I do to make my life and the life of those around me a little bit cooler? If I make choices based on that, then um You know, I'll mess up. (laughs) I'm not good at this stuff, you know, but I have more practice than maybe some people. I don't know. Uh, But, you know, with practice, hopefully one gets better at these kind of things. And then over time, my life does tend to get better. And for me, every year does get better. But for me, and I think this is true of pretty much most people since we evolved to be social creatures, my well being. Uh, necessarily includes the well-being of people around me. So if I'm doing things that are truly good for me, I'm doing things that are good for people around me, and not just making a number in a bank account higher. Um, That can be good, it can be bad, it can be indifferent. But if I'm doing things that are truly good for me, like things that feel awesome, the things that make me jump out of bed in the morning, excited to face the day, um, Those kind of things are probably cool for other people as well, and living that way, I find um, things do get better, and it's somewhat contagious. As I go around and give talks, uh, I have heard from people who said they've seen me give a talk or they took a workshop of mine and then they say, you know, I actually took what you said to heart and I made some changes in my life. And they they claim that they're living a the life they uh, prefer now rather than the life they were living. So, if they in turn do these kind of things, maybe things can get better for more people. Um, You know, the thing is, living this way, for me, again, I can only speak for myself, feels great. Helping me includes helping other people, and helping other people feels awesome. Why wouldn't I do this? I can't imagine not doing it. Um, Why don't more people do it?
0: At At some point, this occurred to you. So, I'm curious how you got to this understanding. Like how, because I I think, you know, most of us, I'm really only now at 33 starting to have within the last couple of years of, you know, a fairly clear image of what I feel like I'm able to contribute, you know, where my, my, uh, to paraphrase somebody who I forget, you know, where my deep passion meets the world's great need, or my my gladness meets the world's need. And and so I feel like everybody goes through a period of exploration and discovery and that includes not just what am I who am I and what am I good at but also you know what do I believe what do I care about. And so like I don't know where's how did you get to this place?
1: Yeah, well You know, the first uh, 25 years or more of my life, um, basically the first half of my life was nothing but pure depression. And, um, you know, as my parents were depressed, uh, they did what they were supposed to do. They got married and had kids. And that's, you know, maybe that's what they would have wanted to do later, maybe not. But they did it when they thought they were supposed to. And that really got in the way of the life they would rather live. They were cool people, they were terrible parents, um, but they they tried their best given that they had kids to do the best for their kids. They didn't take out overtly their resentments <laughs> on us kids, there were three boys, my two brothers. Um, but you know, that doesn't really set the, the backdrop for uh, an ideal childhood and I was beaten up in school every day while the gym teacher watched and occasionally other teachers and which encouraged the bullies to do it more and um, uh, it was total hell and my parents were clueless they couldn't even deal with their own pain let alone mine so yeah I mean that in a nutshell describes how horrible my childhood was like of course I tried to escape my pain not knowing What's going on as a little kid and believing I'm I deserve it. What else can a little kid believe and um, I'd try to escape with television because that was and that was my first addiction. I would watch TV rather than doing anything useful and um, And I'd get fatter eating junk food that the commercials were continually showing while I'm watching cartoons or the daily lineup of uh, sitcoms or whatever and Uh, Just watching TV, not getting better at dealing with people, which I was—I was terrified of people because they beat me up. And um, but I wanted to be part of people. I am a people and we're social, and I wanted to be, and I didn't know how, and I wasn't learning how because I was watching TV rather than doing anything useful. And um, uh, yeah, so things got way worse, and I'd be more of a target at school, which makes me come home to escape all the more, try to escape all the more into TV, and you know, it's just uh. So anyways, uh, eventually I did learn um, uh, to start living a life I love, and that was a long process, but the first thing that uh, I came to was when I was 23 years old, I, I, I realized yet again, telling myself, I don't like watching TV like I've been doing every day of my life, why do I do it? Um, And I still didn't know the answer to that question of of why I did that. But I I did know I didn't have to. So just on that particular moment, I quit. And it was while watching Gilligan's Island, of all things, (laughs) uh, against Bob Denver. um, But uh, if that's meaningful to anyone who's alive now. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, a profound revelation that I didn't have to do something just because I've been doing it every day of my life. Um, I could if I want to, but it's a matter of choice. So I quit. And suddenly I had lots of time, lots of time for all of the shit that I've been pushing away to come screaming into consciousness. And it was horribly painful. But um, uh, that allowed me to start the process of being conscious of all this and, and start possibly healing from all of that stuff. And, um, but the one thing that I noticed right off before even being able to start healing from any of that is, um, I made a choice for myself for the first time in my life, really, because before I was totally depressed, I would only make choices based on what I thought other people wanted of me. And I I couldn't know what other people wanted. So I was always making really stupid choices. And, um, but that was the first time I made a choice for me. And it had a huge effect. And um, so I started becoming conscious that the choices I make for myself have a huge impact on me and also the people around me. Um, and I was, I'm sure I was no fun to be around um, for all, all of that period. And, and as a little kid, I don't think I'd be friends with who I was then. Um, but, um, I'm glad I did have at least some friends and some people who were supportive at really essential times, like some teachers who cared, very few, but enough. and um, you know and and being around some people even in that period, where I could try things, see what happens, make stupid choices, and have people still be my friends. and um, you know that defines a good friend. and um, and hopefully, apologize for any of the stupid shit that I did that hurt people. Um, But getting, you know, sort of okay at communicating with other people as a result. And, um, you know, just the beginnings anyways, that's an ongoing process for all my life too. Um, You know, and trying to the best of my ability not to take my shit out on other people. Um, You know, giving people some of my anger when they deserve it but not the, a lifetime of rage just because someone's annoying to me or whatever which is things I've did in my, done in my past as well so all of that was sort of at the beginning of the process that I am still on now which is seeing that I can make choices no matter where I am I can make a choice based on what I believe might make things a little cooler for me and hopefully the people around me and seeing what happens. And I really have no control over what happens. The only thing I have control over is what I choose. And everything else is random shit of the universe based on whatever. But I can learn a lot from that, and I do. And now I know more than I did before, so now I can make more choices. Because at every step, I can make choices. And um, yeah, and like here, three decades later, this is the current result.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that you you point to the moment that you decided to f- stop watching TV Not because of TV in and of itself, although TV is sort of in a way like it's great that it was on Gilligan's Island because it's like TV is the three hour tour. Like you think you're like, oh, I'll just have a little bit of this. And then like you've eaten the whole box of cookies and you're like, no, what have I done? I just binged another J.J. Abrams show. Like, (laughs) but specifically, also this notion, more generally, it could have been anything. This notion of, Boredom, and you talk about creating a a gap or a space in your life where most people, I think, don't really devote that much time because we're not really encouraged to spend a large amount of our day in idle contemplation of the great mysteries of the universe. Like I, f- I read recently that that scholarship that the school scholastic behavior comes from the same greek root word as leisure like laziness that there is a connection between being able to think high thoughts and having the free time to do it, and I, I remember also there's an an article on brain pickings in maria popova's website i I, I can 't remember who she was quoting all these articles are you know excerpts from books that she's curated for people, but she was talking about the value of boredom like in defense of boredom, and how if you do not sit with yourself for long enough. For something to emerge spontaneously from that empty page, like if you do not just like put the to-do list away for long enough for your own inner wilderness to assert itself and make itself known, then you never really know who you are. Like if you never give yourself time to be bored, then you're never going to figure out what it is that you actually enjoy about your life.
1: Yeah, and not only that, but uh, boredom means that whatever you're doing isn't really what you want to be doing, right? So if you're never bored, that means you're never exploring what you really want. And you just keep doing the same things out of habit and uh, perhaps addiction as well, which is closely related. And right now in our in our world, uh, we have an ever-increasing number of socially sanctioned ways to short-circuit boredom. If you're not really, uh, you know, if you have even just a little bit of discomfort, um, you can, like, grab this thing and start doing this. Um, You can uh, call a friend. You can get on the Internet. You can download porn. You can work too much. You can uh, go out and do pot, which is legal in California now or soon will be whatever. Um, (laughs) Whatever. There are all these things we can do. You can go out into a bar and drink beer. You can do all of these different things. And none of those things. Are bad in and of themselves. But if you're doing all of that to short circuit um, what you, you know, contemplating what you would rather be doing, then I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Um, but, you know, you can even now, you know, take a pill, uh, legally or illegally, whatever. Uh, many of these ways are socially sanctioned. Watching TV, of course, watching your favorite episodes from Netflix on the internet, whatever. These are all ways of avoiding oneself, really. And um, if we never give ourselves a chance to be bored, we never really explore what it is we truly want to be doing, what it is we love doing. And, you know, but the thing is, uh, a point I wanted to to make that touches on all of this that I wanted to make before is um, um, what made me change uh, my life was uh, living in total depression for, you know, 20 some odd years, almost 30, maybe a little more. It's hard to say. Um, I kept doing the same things, even though I felt awful. I was horribly depressed. I kept thinking about killing myself. I was always afraid to kill myself, but trying to come up with ways I could do it without harming other people. And I mean, this is what I kept thinking about. It wasn't a worthwhile existence. But um, at some point, doing the same thing felt uh, way, way, way worse. And something inside of me opted to stay alive. And if I chose to stay alive, I had to make a change because it was too painful to continue to do the same things than to continue. And at that point, the only options were to finally actually off myself, to kill myself or to make a change. That was a crisis point. And I think for most people and even society at large, um, things change when we're forced to change, at least for the first time or the first several times for me. By this time, I've been through that so many times that I can now make a change for the better without getting to a crisis point i can see like (laughs) things are a little bit out of balance now i'm getting irritable maybe a little more than i'm used to um or i'm feeling shame pop up more frequently than uh normal um that's an early warning sign for me now a cue that maybe i need to explore ways of doing things a little bit better what what would be good to change. I don't have to wait for things to be really terrible or a crisis point anymore. But I think for most people, like myself earlier, we have to bring ourselves to a place of extreme pain uh, that forces us to make a change before we actually make a change. And part of um, feeling boredom is allowing yourself to feel the discomfort deep within. And more than discomfort, I mean, we all have unhealed stuff from our childhood or whatever. Um, Some of that is extremely painful. In fact, that's what defines emotional pain for most of us. And uh, we all have that to varying degrees. And for many people, they can live maybe their whole life avoiding all that successfully. If that's what people do, I mean, we all have our own paths to follow. Um, But if people choose that either unconsciously or consciously, that's so be it. Um, But, you know, might you, anyone, uh, be able to live a life that you feel is more worthwhile than the life you're living? What would that be? Is it worth exploring? Does that mean you have to stop doing certain things that you have been doing? Does it mean changing a direction, not going towards something you've always believed you should go towards, but maybe something more you would rather go towards? I don't know. Everyone has to to examine these things and make these kind of choices for themselves. Um, I know many of the things for me in my life and the path I, that's gotten me to where I am now um, but it's different for everyone. Maybe we have some shared experience that can help each other and support each other along the way. But we all have to make those choices for ourselves.
0: Mm. Yeah, it reminds me to be a, a super dork. We're talking about the evolutionary fitness landscape, and so like I, I read about this in Richard Dawkins' book, Climbing Mount Improbable, and like Mount Improbable is. The mountain, uh, if you imagine an organism specializing into one thing, you know, like the I think the example that he gave was a giant squid. A giant squid has giant eyes because it didn't have sonar. It didn't develop another sensory system that it could use. Uh, it didn't have an ear like like primitive whales had an ear that could be repurposed to create sonar but the the squid did not so the squid had to grow an eye instead now like sonar works better than the this giant squid's eye but it can't cross that valley to this other landscape cuz it would have to like de-specialize and then re-specialize and the genetic code of the squid doesn't have the self-awareness that it takes in order to suffer that moment of awkwardness. You know, like evolution, you know, works in a certain way, psychology works in a, slight, a certain different way because we're able to we we suffer from cognitive biases that stick us in situations with diminishing returns all the time because that's the thing that we're doing habitually. That's the thing that we're doing you know, with no more self-awareness than the evolutionary process has. But we can, you know, now we're looking at it, and we're starting to bring awareness to the evolutionary process. We're at the very beginning of that historically. And we're saying, wait a minute, doesn't it make more sense to, like, get rid of wisdom teeth and possibly give human beings the ability to photosynthesize? And, like, all these things that, are you know impossible in that sort of blind open-ended process of eukaryotic evolution at any rate like this is all kind of abstract but i guess what i'm getting at is that you know you're smarter than pond slime therefore should be able to accept that there is there are things worth climbing down out of your specialty and like the longer that we live I think the, and the faster social and cultural change occurs, the more we're going to find ourselves in these situations where, okay, like the thing I went to college for no longer matters at all to anyone. And I have to go back into the learning process and train myself all over again. So Kevin Kelly says in The Inevitable that all of us have to get used to being lifelong noobs now because it's so, everything is changing so fast that. We have to. We basically have to live in this constant state of of discontent and confusion, and, and it's, it's sort of like an unpleasant kind of restless state because we we're actually better off remaining in that state so that we're able to, you know, to take the necessary leaps of faith when the moment calls for it. I don't know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I don't know about if it's really discontent, um, but, um, yeah, things are accelerating. The the rate of change accelerates, and it's probably acceleratingly accelerating because um, all of um, the current technology is based on the previous technology, just like the previous technology was based on the technology before it. And um, it grows exponentially and so the technology that comes into our lives changes our lives dramatically and all of this technology increasing exponentially means exponential accelerating change Um, so I think it really is important for all of us to be um, content with this constant change but some people are more averse to change than others some people are more averse to risk than others, but everyone, I think, is going to have to become more comfortable with more change and taking more risks, because we have to. Uh, The world is not going to allow us otherwise. Um, So we have to, um, uh, I think, explore in order to uh, survive let alone thrive. But if we explore and continually reevaluate where we are and where we want to go um, and what feels good for each of us, you know, and again, we each have to make those choices. Um, But, you know, uh, look at where you are and what do you want to do? And then based on what you choose, see what happens, learn from it, see where you are, and then make another choice to make the next step. And those those choices can be little ones, like do you want to go out and get fries right now? Or big ones, like do you want to quit this job which you really don't like so much anymore? Or even this job which is okay, but you would rather be doing something more meaningful with your time. Or something that's you know kind of meaningful and kind of okay and you make enough money, but you want to do something awesome instead. You know, like these are the kind of choices one can make. And um, what kind of jobs are even going to be available in a few years as technology replaces more and more jobs, jobs which, by the way, I think people shouldn't even be doing, like driving. That's a terrible thing for humans to do Um, or uh, doing repetitive tasks tasks in a factory Um, you know all of these things are are things that are not well suited for people to be doing Uh, people I would love to see people with enough as you were saying before leisure time in order to think about these things and explore these things Uh, if all of our time is being spent at some job just to make money so we can have food and shelter. We're spent. We come home, and, of course, all we want to do is watch TV because everything sucks, and uh, we can just, you know be exhausted, sit in front of a screen, whatever the screen might be, until we uh, pass out. And if we uh, have trouble with that, we can drink enough alcohol or whatever until we're exhausted enough to fall asleep, only to wake up groggy in the morning and drink caffeine so we can wake up and go again to this job we don't even like, just so we can have enough food and shelter so we can continue our jobs that we don't like. I don't think that's a good thing for people to be doing, but the way society is structured right now... People feel lucky. People say that, anyways, if they have a job that pays them enough so that they can have food and shelter, so that they can have continue to have this job they don't even like, so they can make enough money for the, etc. So, um, is that an existence? Yes, but is there a better existence? I think way yes. And um, you know, so how do we proceed? I mean. Society is moving forward. We can't not explore and make technology. That's what people have always done. It is accelerating. It is going to be taking away more and more jobs. People won't have enough money for food and shelter. What then? Also, people relate to their jobs in the form of identifying with their jobs. And if that's taken away, people don't have identity Anymore, even if a bit of like someone's identity is taken away that hurts and people lash out They do things like vote for Trump and um, So, you know, what are we going to do about this? We have to somehow give people um, uh, Means of exploring what it might be for each and every person to find what's meaningful for them to identify with them and their lives in ways that are meaningful and have enough time uh have shelter and food So they have enough time to continue to explore so they can do meaningful, worthwhile things rather than just have a job, which is just getting enough money for food and shelter. Maybe even more than that for some small percentage of people making their number in a bank account bigger, um, which doesn't necessarily make their lives or the lives of those around them or the world better, but quite often makes the world a worse place because they're doing destructive things just because it makes more profit for the corporation they work for. Um, And whether you're a a working class or a professional class, doesn't matter. You're still being uh, in this corporate system which is maximizing profits for those corporations which are not good for the planet. What would happen if even some percentage of people were focusing their energy into something worthwhile as they all see it? we would have a very different world and i would like to see what that world looks like
0: so it's getting from a to b that is so confusing here right it is. like cuz cuz we we got to the point where we were automating you know, we're, we're actually having on like Forbes, people are talking about technological unemployment now. So that became real in a way that it didn't seem real five or ten years ago to most people. But we got to this point because we spent, I don't know, 2,000 years really pushing for that finish line because we wanted leisure. Because we wanted this time off. And so we were enshrining technostically to borrow Eric Davis's term, you know, we made it like a spiritual ideal that technology would save us from work. And yet here we are now going, don't take my job machines. And it's, and it's, it's clear that it's, it's not that simple. Like it's clear that it's because, uh, the value of labor to the market is less and less every day and the value of capital is more and more like labor is you know as software eats the world capital eats labor right so we're at a point where we it's like we realize that what we're giving up in order to not have a job is to not have a way of making subsistence for ourselves or make to generating our own wealth and I'm curious it, what you as somebody who lives within the technological conversation and travels all over the world and talks to smart and creative people all the time like how do you think that we're actually gonna bridge this gap like how are we gonna make it through this just like how do we get into a world where our work is decoupled from our subsistence because that's basically yeah, I, what that's the, that's the challenge is, it seems that is set before us right now
1: yeah that's a big challenge that's set before us we have many challenges but that's a big one you know i'm not uh a big fan of uh capitalism, but um, here we are in a world where capitalism is is the game, and um, since capitalism is the game, we need money for food and shelter, and we need food and shelter to survive. Um, we also need money, some money for getting things that we might want to live the lives we want to live. How do we get that? Right now, uh, it means we get a job, or we create work that somehow gets us an income. Um, But the thing is, money is only one resource. Money is one of many, many, many resources. Um, But it's one important resource on our planet right now. But the main thing, I think, for everyone to um, examine for themselves is what resources do you need to live a life you want to live? And that's a a very open-ended question. Um, There's many answers to that for any given person and any given person looking at that at uh, any given moment might come up with different answers We don't really know all of our inner motivations our inner psychology or whatever But you know over time if we explore that enough we can get some answers that are meaningful for ourselves given that some amount of money is necessary. So how much money? What are you willing to do to get that money? If you're not willing to do all that you need to do to get that money, do you really want those things that that money can buy? Again, you got to answer those things for yourselves, uh, each of us for ourselves. And um, uh, so uh, maybe we want... Less as it turns out, because then we need less money and we can put less money into making money, less time into devoted to making money. Um, so, um, but given that, okay, money is just one resource, we have other resources. If we get together with other people in some functional kind of community, which is one reason why I love hackerspaces, we can do so much more with the same resources, pooling our resources together, our skills, our knowledge, our experience, but also uh, someone might have found on the street a broken drill press, and someone else has some uh, oil and some other uh, file and some things that can fix the drill press, and now everyone with all of our resources pooled together, we have a working drill press. And some people have money, some people have less money, but we can all pool together the money to have one big space or maybe not so big space, but big enough space to put that drill press plus whatever other tools we pull together and um, we can pay for rent and electricity and we can drill things now and we can do things with the other tools and make things that are fun or meaningful. Or cool, or maybe even things that we can make that we can um, enjoy and find meaning in making, and therefore other people might find meaning in making and will pay us to make that for them. And now we've created some means of getting some money for buying food, for buying shelter, for buying the things that we want to live, the lives we want to live. You know, and and again, this is like a a simplification of everything, but I I think hopefully you get the idea of what I'm saying. Um, So uh, meanwhile, as we find that people are doing this in thousands of hackerspaces and other kinds of community spaces around the world, uh, technology continues to... Um, accelerate. Uh, con- technology continues to become cheaper to the for, uh, to the point where corporations are incorporating these technologies to uh, pay less, and therefore make more profit, which means paying labor less, firing people, downsizing, whatever. First outsourcing, then downsizing, um, and um, more and more and more people are left without jobs. And at the same time, if, uh, if anyone's read uh, Capital in the 21st Century by Piketty, um, this big fat book talks about the inevitability of the rich getting richer and everyone else having basically very, very little or nothing, um, which leads to a very, very unstable social situation. Um, if 0.1% of the population has 95% of the wealth This is a very unstable social situation, and it can't last. So what are the choices? Well, I think there's only two. Um, All the extremely wealthy people build fortresses and surround themselves with extremely sophisticated weapons um, or universal basic minimum income. So um, this is being talked about uh, in earnest in governments uh, around the world now. Uh, there are a lot of people who are very averse to this, so I don't know if it will actually happen. But uh, it it was voted on in Switzerland. It lost. That was uh, a year or two ago. and um, uh, But it didn't lose huge. And people in the U.S. talk about it. Uh, the current administration, of course, is not. Um, but I think that is what needs to happen if... Um, we're going to survive. And, you know, capitalism, again, uh, I'm not a fan of capitalism, but it is here. It's not going away on its own. Um, capitalism more or less has a life of its own. It can be viewed as having one of a life of its own. And it morphs itself in order to survive. And it's morphed in many ways over the centuries. And um, currently, it's at a point where it's about to be yet again another crisis where it will need have universal basic minimum income in order to survive otherwise the 0.1% won't have enough of a market in order to make a profit by selling shit because there's no one to sell to because no one has any money to buy the shit right. um, but if, if there is basic minimum income it doesn't mean everyone has a mansion it doesn't mean everyone even has a nice apartment it, it just means everyone has has a place to live if they want one. Everyone has enough food. Maybe it's fucking craft cheese food product or whatever, but at least it's food that one can survive on. And then people can find means of making an income uh, doing, making things, providing good services that are meaningful for them, that are hopefully meaningful for other people that they find meaningful enough that they'll pay you to do it. And if we're all doing that, we have uh, an exchange going on, which is an economy. It doesn't necessarily need to be the centralized currencies. You know, and more and more, there are local currencies that aren't based on debt through banks, um, which are worth exploring. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is, of course, uh, uh, everyone probably knows what that is by now, a decentralized currency that isn't created by banks lending money out into the economy, but it's just arbitrarily generated by a computer algorithm, by people intentionally using that algorithm to do so, and um, at great expense of energy, which is, you
0: know, whatever. That's that, that, is, that is an issue, but maybe it's a tangent issue, as is the... Yeah,
1: it's another thing. But still, you know, there are these other currencies and I have some in my wallet as I, I, I travel around the world. And it's kind of interesting to me. We do, you know, we do need some kind of exchange medium in our modern world. But does it need to be dollar bills, euro bills, RMB bills in China? Um, you know, um here's a sort of a tangent which will come back uh i was listening to the radio um a long time ago um when i was in my 20s and it was um this guy who was a young man in uh 1929 when the depression happened uh when it hit and um and he he, he mentions uh okay so one day There's factories, there's things being built, everyone's going to work, there are people going to their jobs in the bank, there are people um, making things, buying things, exchanging money for goods and services, and then the next day, nothing changed, and yet no one's going to work, the factories aren't making things, banks are closed, what changed? What changed? And his answer was really nothing changed except people's faith in the exchange medium. So, um, all the resources are there, all the people are there, all the skills, all this experience, all the knowledge, all the resources, they're still the same. And yet people aren't doing what they're doing because their faith in the exchange medium changed. Why do we need a centralized bank for the exchange medium. I mean, there's a lot of psychology that goes into these things, but we can have our own um, local exchange media. Um, And, Uh, you know a Pazooza as they said on the Bullwinkle show uh, when I was a kid growing up watching way too much TV Um, you know whatever you want to call it Um, if we all agree that you know I'll do this cool thing for you and that's worth three Pazoozas and now you can do three Pazoozas worth of stuff for you know someone else can do three Pazoozas worth of stuff for you and um, you know or three dollars whatever So these are things I think are are worth exploring um, and doing it locally only and not have big centralized ones which are good for big expenses for a nation kind of transaction, uh, building a road where it involves people from lots of local areas getting together to do something big, it's still worth having a centralized currency but for small things just amongst people in our community why do we need the centralized currency so i think that's just one thing that people can create to have yet another resource making it more likely that people will have time to explore and do things that are more meaningful rather than just going to a job but basic minimum income i think is a necessary step Um, In order to ensure that people can be part of the centralized economy to keep capitalism alive, which it won't do anyways, and uh, the goods and services that are available now can continue, hopefully not the ones that are destructive. (laughs) And whether we're in the Paris Accords or not, not the ones that are making our uh, environment worse. Um, But whatever, all of this has to happen slow enough so things don't collapse or become too traumatic, but fast enough so that we can survive as a species.
0: Hmm. Yeah, there's this notion, I think, basically it's a tree of solar panels is going to be more effective than just one solar panel, right? Like you're going to be able to catch light from all these different angles. You know, you're going to be able to catch the reflections. And in a similar way, it seems like a tree of currencies with like still you get your your trunk, your strong central currencies. And then as the use cases become more local and specific, you get more local and specific currencies that can be exchanged sort of downstream to the, the trunk of the tree. Right. And the, the same thing is true in political systems. Like it, it doesn't the crisis that we're facing in the States is that is in part, I guess you can view it as our representative government is not accurately or adequately delegating decision-making to the local layer that's able to adapt and respond more effectively, you know? So like, it's the same thing that, you know, democracy was trying to replace the totality of kingship we've gotten to another layer of social complexity where we just literally cannot make decisions fast enough with legislature anymore this is a pop culture reference but this was the debate in captain america's civil war about like if the u.n is authorizing you know, quote-unquote police action on the part of superheroes. If, if you have to have a U.N. bureaucracy authorizing it every time a superhero goes in to save the day, how the hell is that going to work? Like, on the one hand, yes, you need some sort of regulation, but it's not going to work if it's a room of 100 people that are constantly having to, like, green light every single use. And the same thing is going on with, like, we have these political representatives that cannot possibly be experts in every area every topic that they're required by their job to address so like how do we delegate uh, expertise and decision making agency in a fractal way so that this whole thing flows correctly and i think that that's sort of where our ability to envision how we can engineer a a future that works for everybody is sort of leap frogging with the technology that actually enables this to to work like until we can see how we can write the kind of decentralized code that supports this kind of decision-making architecture then we can't even we can't even begin to discuss how it would actually be implemented that may not lead to any deeper insights i don't know
1: but well, it, it, it touches on lots of interesting points. Um, you know, our government is supposedly a representative democracy, um, but how many people in office actually represent you or me or anyone we know? Um, you know, there's maybe a handful out of the thousands of people who are elected into office. And um, this is because it, our, our system isn't working very well for, for many people. And it, it is working well for the corporations that pay for the election campaigns for the people who are elected um, if you define working well by maximizing profits for those corporations, which is a pretty narrow definition of working well. In the well. short term, too. Oh, and only in the short term, because that's what's important, maximizing profits in the next quarter, because that's what's important for the shareholders, right? So, um, but, you know, it, the... the way things are with representatives uh uh in our government they have to act as if they are experts in all of these fields and they can't act as if they're they don't know something because then they're look they're deemed weak and uh but what if a representative whatever level of government there is when they don't know something they actually seek out people who do wouldn't that be interesting so in germany um Uh, there's this organization called the Chaos Computer Club. And they're a a well-respected hacker organization in Germany. And they've been around now for 34 years. And not all people in government in Germany by any means, but some people in government in Germany, when they don't know something about technology, um, they ask people in the Chaos Computer Club and the Chaos Computer Club is all volunteer-run, and so volunteers offer their opinion. They're not always listened to, (laughs) but they offer their opinion, and sometimes the people in government actually um, make choices based on what they learned. That's a start. Um, Another thing that's interesting for me with Chaos Computer Club is that uh, they're an interesting mix of... Uh, hierarchy and anarchy. And I think a fantastic, uh, great mix, a great use of both of those things. So hierarchy as in there is um, a structure of people making decisions with one person at the top having final say. Um, But that person at the top um, takes into account all of the other people uh, in their decision making and or at least that they almost always do and they are humans people mess up and whatever but um uh, but they do a pretty good job of it after 34 years um and then anarchy doesn't mean everyone just does whatever they want um anarchy has many definitions but uh anarchy in this sense means that people uh are given a space to self-organize to do the cool things that they need and want to do. So in these huge hacker conferences that the Chaos Computer Club, CCC, puts on every year, there's a lot of organization that makes this huge event of 12,500 people possible. Um, It's all self-funded. A lot of people do donate uh, their time. Some people donate equipment. And so the organization makes it possible for all that to be facilitated. And the main goal of all of this is to have a building for a limited period of time where anarchy can make all sorts of magic happen for a four-day period during the conference. These annual chaos communications congresses. (laughs) And um, they're, they're amazing. And I would love to see our government or any government work more like that. So as hackerspaces and other kind of community groups around the country and the world uh, form each unique, each perfect for the community that starts and keeps it going, and um, each one organizing themselves in whatever way they see fit, um, all performing the kind of tasks and uh, classes, workshops, uh, making things, learning things, whatever people want to do there, each one unique in all of those respects, um, but all of them helping each other wherever it makes sense. If the government, the central government, uh, with which we live under, um, we're just providing the infrastructure to enable all that to happen and not getting in the way of all of this happening, but providing the ground rules for all of us, hopefully facilitating all of us getting along. Um, that would be ideal, I think. Um, so the government isn't going to go away, none of the governments of the world are going to go away on their own, um, revolutions just mean the governments change, they don't go away, they create enemies along the way, which means they start becoming oppressive against the people who are trying to destroy them, and they're not all that different from what they were placed, except for the kinds of people that are suffering. The number of people suffering don't seem to change. Um, so uh, the governments aren't going away but maybe they can hopefully stop getting in the way of what people do as much but whether they do or not we can still find niches within which we can form communities where we can uh, live our lives and flourish and thrive because the governments can't be everywhere You know, the closest that has come to that is uh, maybe North Korea right now. I don't know. I haven't been there, but from the stories, you know, or Nazi Germany where no one can seemingly trust one another to actually bear their souls because you'll get turned in. Or, you know, I didn't live through that, so I don't know. Again, just from stories I've heard, these are kind of the worst that it happens. But even in those places... There are niches within which people can form communities and do things for one another to the best they can do under the circumstances. And we can always do that. And we can always help other communities doing that in their own way. And um, so anarchy can, anarchy in that sense of anarchy, can thrive regardless of governments but if there's enough of these individual community groups and we all pool our resources and we help each other in our uh, communities we help the other communities maybe we can have some positive effect on um, people in government too who are also totally welcome to join these many and growing little communities that are Cropping up and growing everywhere Because they're positive for everyone Including people Who are in the hierarchical governments
0: Yeah it does seem like The network power Factor here is going to Transform this situation from the inside out Like to loop it back To notion of universal income The Last big article I saw Proposing this Seriously, in a serious economic forum, was a transcript of a speech by Linda Rothschild. Mm. And, you know, she was making the same case that you were making, saying, look, we need to keep this money in circulation, or the entire basis for our wealth is going to crumble. And so I'm optimistic to the extent that I believe that the benefit to working together becomes more and more apparent and necessary the faster this thing is spinning and that at some point like the reason that we're seeing both China and Russia take interest in blockchain technologies for running a national currency right now is because shit's out of control you know it's like we're really at that point where if you do not lube up your national currency it's gonna break a piston we have to start digesting a piece of this rigid thing to allow a certain amount of like fluidity and movement within our systems. And I think, so I'm actually, I mean, as, as ugly as it already is and stands to get, you know, in this, this process. Cause again, you know, the more people are involved, the less self-aware, reflexive, deliberate, the actor is like the, the whole bureaucracy I think is still operating as that sort of, The short-term looking at optimizing profit for the next quarter it's a very short time horizon and it's so it's suffering that same evolutionary blindness that a squid's genome is that like as a species we are definitely not we don't have it together enough to make that kind of decisive action and say You know, like, with the European economic austerity measures, we can't say, okay, we're going to take one for the team so that the next generation's better off. Like, as a group, we're incapable of doing that. As individuals, it seems like we're capable, but the more and more networked we become, the more, I think, our groups will be able to act with that kind of deliberation and agency as individuals. So the hope, I guess, is that we just sort of surrender to participating in the like network enabled human meta organisms that are going to actually be making these decisions because <laughs> you know like we actually like, i guess it, it all boils down to teamwork you know like accept the fact that you're already functioning as a, as a part of a team in this i don't know
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, team, community, whatever, um, we can do a lot on our own. um, And uh, we have. And in modern times, it's been a focus on doing more and more things independently and being independent, especially as American males. We're supposed to be independent. But we survived as a species on the planet because we're social creatures. And that requires that we come together in community. Uh, in order to survive in an often hostile environment uh, back at the beginning of our species. We don't need this to survive now. Um, Well, maybe we do. Um, But seemingly, we don't need that to survive right now. Like, I can uh, get a job and get money and rent an apartment and buy food and have health care if I make enough money and and survive. Uh, But just on my own something's missing even as an introverted geek that I am I'm totally an introverted geek Um, I'm missing something if I don't have other people in my life I'm not a kind of person that thrives as a hermit there are a very small number of people who maybe can but very small we all need community in order in order to feel like our life is meaningful and not feel lonely um, and not feel like alone and uh, sad so um, having people to share things with uh, whether it's an intimate partner or partners or uh, a group of friends a network of people you hang out with acquaintances whatever we're social creatures we need these kind of things Um, so if we have these community groups, and you know, and my focus again is hacker spaces where people get together and do all sorts of things in communities to support each other in exploring and doing what each person finds meaning in doing, and it's a constant thing. This community and the people are perhaps coming and going, but the community persists, and that's the base, basic purpose of the community is to support each of the people in that community to explore continually and do what is really cool for each person. Um, So as these communities come together, that empowers all of the people in them to do all sorts of cool things for themselves as they see it. And if they're truly doing things that they feel are really awesome, and not just making numbers bigger in a bank computer, which can be part of it, whatever, but things that are really meaningful, for each person and we we don't know until we explore and it takes a lot of time and a lot and a lot and a lot of trial and error and messing up and learning and trial and error more and more but if each person is on that path doing that they find things that are cool which means that people in the community also probably feel it's cool and then other communities can learn from that and you can share and you can learn from other communities etc so um, i think this is Something we can do regardless of whether you're pessimistic or optimistic. Um, I try not to be pessimistic or optimistic. I, I try to my best ability to see things as they are and not let my belief of what I would like to see get in the way of what is. Um, I do want to have my ideas of what I would like. And then try to see where they are right now, how things are right now, see where I would like them to be. And what can I do, given the way things are right now, to bring it maybe a little closer to where I'd like to see things? Um, and I can do that individually. And we can do that so much better in community. And if we have a, our, a community, you know, if each of us has a community that we like and the communities we're in help other communities that make sense to help. Um, as long as we can find niches in which to do that. And there always are um, sometimes more, sometimes less. And if the government's out of a way, there's more. And then the people in government and corporations and all these hierarchical structures can be part of these communities so they can help themselves as well. That's where I see possibility of things getting better for more people. Cause mm-hmm. you know, what does it come down to? I mean, there's resources, there's lack of resources, there's things that are going that are terrible, there's things that are going that are bad, there's things that are going that are good, that are wonderful. I think what it comes down to, at least for me, the way I see it, the big picture is, I would love to see a world, ideally, where 100% of the people on this planet, and all the other beings believe their life is way worth living. Not just kind of okay, even, but way worth living. I mean, that would be a fucking awesome planet to be on. We're not on that planet right now. But I would love to make it that way as much as possible. While I'm alive, that's what I'll be doing. And it's not for me to define what way worthwhile is for anyone except for me. But I would love to give space to the best of my ability, to every single person on the planet for them to explore, for each person to explore what that might mean for themselves. And we can do that on our own, but again, we can do that so much better in community, where it's a supportive community which is there for that. And um, regardless of government, regardless of the uh, environment, as long as we're alive, we can continue to do that.
0: Well, Dan... Mitch, honestly, that's that's pretty much a banner waving kind of manifesto <laughs> statement. We can end it there, or I don't know if you ha- do. You have any other you, anything else you want to leave us with? At the very least, like where can people find out more about you and your your schedule of appearances and and your work and all of those things?
1: Well, I'm on all the uh, the usual social media thingies: uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, uh, Diaspora hello I'm uh, (laughs) I've got a Wikipedia page Uh, so anyways on all the social media things I post what I'll be up to I'm I'm probably going to make a Patreon page, too, what the hell, and um, I'll post things there as well. I just came back from China, where for two weeks I was visiting uh, some pretty cool hackerspaces there that are really doing things well. There's thousands of hackerspaces that have started in China in the last two years. Most of them are not really doing things in a worthwhile way, but at least there's a chance, and a lot of them are doing way cool things and I go there and try to show people like it's about community it's not about making a space to pressure people into forming a startup that'll turn into the next apple to make an investor's money that's not what it's about um, it's about community for people to come together and do cool shit and uh, some of those will turn into cool startup ideas that'll create things that are worthwhile for people to who will want to pay them to do it. That's what startups can be good for, right? So, um, And they can start maybe hundreds of millions of sustainable small businesses. Wouldn't that be a sustainable economy as a whole? So um, anyways, I came back from China beating my head against that wall um, and having some some headway, so to speak. (laughs) And um, uh, soon I'll be in uh, Europe for a month and a half giving talks and workshops at um, hacker conferences and other conferences there, and at hacker spaces uh, around Switzerland and Netherlands and Germany. And then I'll have my hacker trip to China. which uh, every year I organize and I bring people who want to travel together for three weeks uh, to check out manufacturing because it's fascinating and also to visit schools and universities so we can help them become actual places of learning rather than places merely of taking tests and also um, to talk to bureaucrats there to collectively beat our head against that wall of making community rather than stupid startups in uh, hackerspaces there so uh, yeah and of course do cool tourist things as well so that's a bit of what I'll be doing over the next few months and uh, and I love doing all that stuff so uh, if anyone's interested please contact me and if I can help in any way and whatever you might be thinking of please ask because I love helping any way I can
0: that's awesome yeah thank you for contributing to this archive of conversations yeah, and, thanks. It's and been- may, may the people listening to this in the distant future feel that you have succeeded in your task at fostering human community.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, if we all play our part. <laughs> right. I can. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, thanks, Michael. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.